Once again, welcome to another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. He's Reggie Rizzo. I'm Marcus Papp. On today's episode, more proof that water once existed on Mars. Following the recent fires, California's Joshua Tree Groves make a comeback, thanks in part to a two-humped mammal. And a drug manufacturing capsule will finally be returning from space. We'll tell you more. Plus, this day in history, how one little girl gave a famous president his iconic look. That's coming up on Cool Stuff. Well, this week's shows have seemingly had a real space theme to them, so I figured why not cap it off with another story that's out of this world. I'll hold for applause and laughter there. Reggie, anything? Nothing? Chirp, chirp, chirp. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter recently sent back photos from the Red Planet revealing the location of an ancient river system. Yes, flowing rivers on the surface of Mars. We'll link to the story in today's show notes so you can see for yourself, but it's believed Mars was once home to enough long stretches of running water to create bona fide habitable environments. And per Space.com, only two other worlds in our solar system, apart from Earth, are known to have harbored rivers. That would be Mars, where water flowed billions of years ago, and Saturn's moon Titan, where rivers of liquid methane still run today. The most recent pictures showcase an ancient river system in the Aeolus Planum region. Hopefully I'm at least doing that somewhat of justice. For those who are into such things, scientists actually map Mars using 30 different quadrangles, Think four-sided shape that's not necessarily a perfect square. Last summer, an MIT team applied a new satellite imagery technique to calculate how fast and deep rivers once were in select regions of Mars. They found that rivers possibly flowed for at least 100,000 years at the Gale Crater and for at least 1 million years at Jezero Crater, regions that have recently been investigated by NASA's Curiosity and Perseverance rovers, respectively. That's potentially long enough to allow for the development and support Port of life for the MIT team. It's also worth noting that the Gale and Jezero craters are both believed to be ancient lake beds that once overflowed with water billions of years ago. Now, as mentioned, the most recent photos come to us from the MRO, which typically flies at an altitude of 155 to 196 miles above the planet's surface. That's a distance close enough that it's actually able to capture intricate details within the photos. In actuality, we're looking at ridges on the planet's surface here, of course, because the rivers are long gone, ridges that show the location of those old river beds in Mars' distant past. Per NASA, quote, Riverbeds often get filled with gravel, and the surrounding terrain is often built up of fine-grained mud from river overflows. The gravely river bottom and the fine-grained surroundings can lead to a strange phenomenon that geologists call inverted channels, end quote. The angle at which the ridges join together in these photos indicate the rivers flowed from top right to bottom left or southwest. And in case you're wondering, the MRO is a spacecraft designed to search for the existence of water on Mars. So just doing its job and provide support for missions to that planet as part of NASA's Mars Exploration Program. It actually launched from Cape Canaveral back in August of 2005 and reached Mars in March of 2006. So needless to say, Reggie, the MRO is going strong just I mean nearly two decades after it was actually launched from Earth. Yeah and it's fascinating to think about rivers flowing on Mars. I mean think about when you think rivers flowing you think life in general usually where there's water and it's flowing and it's moving I I can't imagine it without a bunch of green around it except for those methane rivers uh, that I don't imagine. (laughs) You wouldn't pay top dollar for (laughs) some real estate on a methane river? No, no, I would not. But the the fact that, you know, there was flowing water on Mars just 
it, it's fascinating and who knows what they'll discover as they continue to explore these regions. It may be coming home late, but the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, finally approved re-entry for the Sparta face manufacturing capsule. The first orbital factory from Varda was originally scheduled to return in September, but its re-entry was denied. However, after months of requesting permission, it will finally land. Delian Esparohov, Varda's co-founder, told Gizmodo, quote, Did it go as smoothly as either Varda or FAA anticipated? The answer is no. But at the end of the day, we arrived to a result that we are happy with, and the FAA has done their duty to ensure it was a safe operation, end quote. The Orbital Factory was launched in June and was designed to manufacture products in a microgravity environment. This was to help products avoid gravity-induced effects. One of the drugs produced was ritonavir, which is used for HIV treatment. They were able to grow crystals needed for that drug because in space, protein crystals can grow larger and more perfect due to the reduction of gravity. Creating those crystals went off without a hitch. But the re-entry is where the trouble occurred. Not only were they denied re-entry from the FAA, the Air Force denied them use of the Utah Test and Training Range where the spacecraft was to land. The good news that extra time in space shouldn't have any negative effects on the crystals. However, for future products, that may not be the case. Esparohov said, quote, Obviously, over time, as we produce more complex pharmaceuticals, those may have more time constraints, end quote. Varda will also make a little history here as they are the first to be granted a Part 450 re-entry license. Plus, they will be the first commercial entity to land a spacecraft on U.S. soil. At one point, Varda did try to land in Australia to avoid some of the regulations that are in place for the U.S., but that was unsuccessful. Esparohoof believes that it was just bad coordination on all parties involved. He expects it'll go more smoothly now that there is more understanding on which government agencies are responsible for re-entry. He added that another mission is planned for this summer, and he thinks that, quote, this is the first step to a whole lot of different things that can eventually get brought down to Earth on a much more regular commercial and lower cost scale, end quote. So, Marcus, did you know that uh, crystals actually formed larger and more perfect in space? <laughs> Reggie, why? what kind of question is that? We talk about this every day. I can't get enough of discussing uh, crystal formation in outer space. No, I, I didn't know that. I had no idea. It is a fascinating fact there. All I have to say is this, though. I mean, you know how beloved these pharmaceutical industries are here on Earth. Well, naturally, it's it, why wouldn't we send them off to space to make these drugs as well? Okay, you're bringing up pharmaceuticals here, but he did mention or kind of led to the point that it may not just be pharmaceutical companies that are sending things to space. They just sure. happen to be the first ones. There will be others. Like, maybe there'll be <laughs> wines they send to space. And you know how it's latitude and longitude right now are where you get your good wines, you don't have to be in this certain area. Maybe it'll be if your wine isn't made in space, is it really wine? Yeah, maybe it will be. Hey, look, I'm all for wine made wherever it comes from. Although then again, I have no idea what to expect from space wine. Let's let's uh, <laughs> hold off on any assessments there. But naturally, you would start with the pharmaceutical industry when headed to space, right? Yeah, I mean, if your Advil isn't made on Mars, <laughs> is it any good? <laughs> <laughs> nope, that's a fact, man. I don't want any ibuprofen that doesn't originate uh, outside of Venus. Although it's probably burnt to a crisp at that point. As you point out in your last story, buy your plots of land on Mars now. Those those companies are going to be buying them up to build their plants. Can't wait to see the Merck factory located near the dry <laughs> riverbed on Mars. 
Well, here's what I hope you'll consider a feel-good story for the day. Recall that back in 2020 and 2023, California saw the Joshua trees at Mojave National Preserve almost eradicated due to wildfires. The 2020 wildfire started due to a lightning strike and wiped out nearly 1.3 million trees, a figure that represents a quarter of the population in that area. That per LAist. Now, those trees are being restored thanks to a team of six volunteers and their three camels. This after the National Park Park Service undertook a project to breed Joshua trees in nurseries before bringing them back to the higher desert country, again via camels. Per GNN, camels actually would have been present on the North American continent during the last ice age thanks to the Bering Land Bridge, so their presence isn't a total disturbance to the area. And indeed, the volunteers working with the camels argue they cause less disturbance than mules or horses would. Now, throwing it back to the time of the fire, scientists knew restoration was going to be an uphill battle because of how much time the plant, the Joshua tree that is, takes to pollinate and grow. Deborah Hewson is the deputy superintendent at the Mojave National Preserve. She said, quote, Joshua tree seeds don't spread very quickly. They don't move very fast or they don't move very far with just small mammals around, end quote. So in the past, these forests were reportedly cultivated by giant ground sloths that were once described by NPR as looking like, quote, fuzzy Volkswagen beetles, end quote. The sloths would feed on Joshua trees and spread their seeds far and wide through their excrement. Since the animals became extinct, wind and rodents have taken up that job, but with decidedly less success. One scientist told Cronkite News that out of 1,000 Joshua tree seeds, only three or four of them actually sprout. Even then, the plant grows just half an inch to three inches each year, and thus the need for this latest project. But with the Mojave being a national wilderness, there are no roads or paths to make the restoration project easier. Instead, volunteers with the NPS were forced to hike hours to the SEMA Dome reforestation site with a few seedlings, the cages that protect them, and water to nourish their growth before having to walk back to the nursery. By the way, the SEMA Dome is a volcanic field in San Bernardino County, California, near the Nevada border. So longtime volunteer at the Mojave National Preserve, Nancy Fight, finally contrived of a solution and called her friend Jennifer Lagusker. Lagusker told LAist, quote, the job was to pack them and have them carry these things into wherever the Park Service had us go. When Nance told me about this, I thought, well, what better way to advocate for the camel than to show the world, hey, they can pack. They really like it. And honestly, they need that kind of job, end quote. Camels are obviously at home in the desert, and their wide, soft feet actually allow them to pass across the landscape without disturbing the sandy soil and vegetation. Since 2011, Lagusker and her three camels, Herbie, Sully, and Chico, have been doing most of the restoration work at Sima Dome, a remote area hit especially hard by those fires. But after the second round of fires in 2023, the Sima Dome project was considered finished after 3,500 seedlings were successfully planted, having made their way into the desert on the backs of Herbie, Sully, and Chico. This year, the caravan is off to another area where reforestation work will continue in hopes that those Joshua trees will once again populate the desert there in the Mojave. I found it fascinating right away when you talked about how a lot of the animals are too slow to move the seeds around and get the, the forest going, yet sloths were the ones that were doing it really well. Aren't sloths known for being slow? You know, that's a great point, Reg. I don't know a whole lot about the giant ground sloth that has since become extinct, but you're right. You would think that's a pretty slow deal. Although, as they described it, they were eating these things. And then, of course, you know, the excrement was there. And yeah. 
and maybe it was easier or more easily absorbed into the soil in that manner. I don't know. This is pure speculation maybe. at this point. Maybe with it being a giant sloth, there was more fertilizer, you could say, around <laughs> them for the growth. That was, yeah, that was instant fertilization, you would think. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that, that maybe makes a little more sense than tiny little rodents running around doing the job. Not as much of that... Uh, uh, fertilization going on. Yeah. Well, a bottom line is it's it's apparent that the the Joshua tree forest that existed took a long time to become what it was, and of course, just the, those devastating fires. Uh, there wasn't a lot of hope after all that had taken place. So really cool to see that this group of volunteers and and their camels, Herbie, Sully, and Chico, are out there uh, bringing it back, and hopefully, it'll be there well into the future. Taking a look at this day in history, on February 16, 1861, President Abraham Lincoln had his train make a stop at Westfield, New York on his way home to Washington. Now, what makes this stop special is that he made the stop to thank an 11-year-old girl for giving him advice on growing a beard to get more votes and win the presidential election. Grace Bedell sent a letter to Lincoln in 1860, just before the election, urging him to improve his appearance by growing that beard. Her letter said... Uh, and by the way, remember, this is written by an 11-year-old girl and in the 1860s. So if it sounds a little odd, that is why. Honorable A.B. Lincoln, dear sir, my father has just home from the fair and brought home your picture. I am a little girl, only 11 years old, but want you should be president of the United States very much. So I hope you wouldn't think me very bold to write to such a great man as you are. I have got four brothers and part of them will vote for you anyway. And if you let your whiskers grow, I will try to get the rest of them to vote for you. You would look a great deal better for your face is so thin. All of the ladies like whiskers and they would tease their husbands to vote for you and then you'd be president. My father is a going to vote for you. And if I was a man, I would vote for you too. But I will try to get everyone to vote for you that I can. I must not write any more answer this letter right off. Goodbye, Grace Bedell. Well, Lincoln took Grace's advice, won the election and then thanked her in person. For when he stopped the train in Westfield, the New York World reported on reaching Westfield, Mr. Lincoln said that if the young lady was in the crowd, he should be glad to see her. There was a momentary commotion in the midst of which an old man struggling through the crowd approached, leading his daughter, whom he introduced to Mr. Lincoln as his Westfield correspondent. Mr. Lincoln stooped down and kissed a child and talked with her for some minutes. Her advice had not been thrown away upon the rugged chieftain. A beard of several months' growth covers, perhaps adorns, the lower part of his face. The young girl's peachy cheek must have been tickled with a stiff whisker, for the growth of which she was herself responsible. Lincoln wait, did wait, wait, wait. Up, did, did you write this, Reggie? Is this your... Uh, I've never heard that, you talk this way. No, that that is the... Or sorry, end quote. That is the quote from the New York World at that time. Okay. Up there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Because I'm going... Wow, no. you've really changed your dialect here. <laughs> I, I decided to write it in a more 18th, uh, 19th century uh, tone. <laughs> the young girl's peachy cheek? <laughs> Tickled uh, I, with a stiff whisker. Okay. <laughs> Journalism has evolved. Uh, that's what I'm taking from it. Definitely this. has. Yes. <laughs> So uh, if, if you're not familiar with the history, Lincoln did win, obviously, with 180 out of 303 electoral votes, but less than 40 percent of the popular vote. Only one president in U.S. history has done worse than that, John Quincy Adams in 1824, when he only managed to get 31 percent of the popular vote. But Lincoln only got to serve one month and 11 days of his second term before being shot and killed while attending a theater performance. His assassin, John Wilkes Booth, of course, a supporter of the Confederacy. Uh, Lincoln is one of the most popular presidents in American history, constantly ranked among the top three alongside George Washington and Franklin D. Roosevelt. 
His greatest achievements are seen as ending the Civil War, abolishing slavery, and developing the economy. Ironically, if you didn't know this, uh, his wife Mary came from a wealthy slave-owning family in Lexington, Kentucky. Several of her half-brothers died serving the Confederate Army during the Civil War. So that whole beard look that you think of with Lincoln, you know, the top hat, the beard, you know, that might not be possible if it weren't for the letter of an 11-year-old girl. Yeah, that's wild, man. I have never heard that story in my life. So to think that she might have played a role in developing his iconic look. I, I'm also fascinated that an 11-year-old girl in the 1860s was thinking this way to say, you know what this guy needs? A beard. Let me write a letter about it. All I'm just right. imagining him getting the letter, reading that, like, Mary, is my face too skinny? Do I need to grow a beard? <laughs> yes, honey, grow a beard. <laughs> I don't know if you had political teams or campaign teams at that time, but presumably that's who you would consult. Hey, where's my campaign manager? What do you think? Is a beard in order here? Because if so, I got to get to work on this thing. And how do you feel about stovetop hats? You know, it's funny, though, is that the beard doesn't really matter as much in a time when there's no TV for them to see you. I mean, by the time he had the pictures printed and sent out, would the election have already been over? That's a fair point. I mean, we all hear the story about Nixon v. Kennedy, and, and that was when the with the emergence of television. Uh, of course, prior to that, the visuals were not nearly as frequent for some of these candidates. But I do suppose, you know, you're going to see this uh, picture in the paper, and that's where people are going to make their, their assessments or judgment of people is how you look in that one still photo, probably. Ah, times have changed, you know, no, no more uh, saying peachy girls. Note that the New York World newspaper is no longer with us. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. I'm Reggie Rizzo. He's Marcus Path. Feel free to email us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. And, you know, while you're listening to the podcast, like us, review us, leave some comments. Uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say. We'll be back next week with more cool stuff. Cool stuff.